G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Continuing our study of Genesis 1, we're now over the hump and into the second half of the creation week. And in keeping with our practice of examining what these things are that the biblical author is telling us about, we're going back, back to the firmament, Marty. Whoa, Doc, this is heavy. (laughs) That was terrible. (laughs) Uh, There certainly was a lot to talk about when we broke the firmament in our earlier episodes, but there's still more going on up there that we need to talk about. And to be honest, I'm not sure if it's going to be more or less controversial than those episodes this time. So uh, preparing my hate mail inbox. Uh, First, I'd like (laughs) to take a moment to talk about Updog. Well, that sounds good, but I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. What's Updog? Not much. What's up with you? Seriously, enough small talk. What's up is the focus of this episode, and we hope you'll enjoy exploring the heavens with us. Here is the text from Genesis 1 and verses 14 to 19. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. There's that word I hate again, firmament. To divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So uh, that's our reading. God said, let there be stars. Well, no, he didn't. He Lights, they're lights. Uh, just like we saw at the beginning of the creation, and lights have purpose. Lights do something. They mark time and they provide light. Right. And dividing light from darkness, that's obvious enough. Day is obviously the period of time when we're when the sunlight and night is the period of time where the stars and the moon can be seen the best. And we've been, they uncovered that already, but is there more to it than that? Well, we've seen this pattern in the first half of creation and it continues throughout where God speaks not to make material things that weren't there before, but to assign function to the things that are there. And how do we know they were already there? Because God simply says, let there be. And he doesn't exert any force with his strength. He doesn't fight any battles with his heavenly host. He doesn't command things to appear by his rank or authority. He doesn't have to. Remember that function is existence. The stars were there already from a material perspective. But without purpose, they were merely part of the cosmic waters of chaos. They were functionally non-existent. Now that they have a job to do, their existence can be spoken of in real terms. They aren't nothing anymore. They're lights. They're markers. They tell the time. Remember when I said back in our first episode that the context of the final composition of the primeval history was the Babylonian captivity? Yeah, and we talked about how this text was written to people who had questions about how this could have happened to them, why the world was so messed up, and even if God was still in control. Yeah, well, here's a little piece of the Torah, specifically from the section in Leviticus that deals with the curses that Israel was foretold would come upon them if they were unfaithful to Yahweh. So this is Leviticus 26 in verses 33 to 35 from the ESV. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. 
Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have the rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Now, just leaving it there would be to leave us in a dark place, and I want you to know that this was not a hopeless situation. Further in the same chapter, so verses 40 to 45, God says this, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them, and enjoy its Sabbaths, while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity, because they spurned my rules, and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly, and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Now these are just small pieces of a very long chapter, but it's already clear that the exile was foretold, the people were forewarned, and they were going to need to be put in a position where remembering this law would become their only hope of deliverance. So how come in the text you read just now there was so much emphasis on the Sabbath? I'm assuming that's important. Yeah, that should definitely be telling you something important. You know, that God cares about the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, and that's why it's one of the Ten Commandments given to Israel, because God knows that his people need to take the time to acknowledge God and to worship him in the manner that he has prescribed. And failure to do this would and did result in exile. So God had a certain way that he wanted to be honoured by his people and it required devoting time to him. How can you honour a time commitment if you aren't keeping track of time? How can you worship God by giving him your time if you're ignoring the signs that tell you the time? God wants regular communion with us and that's why he made it so that the heavens declare the glory of God. It should be impossible to miss. Anyone living in the ancient world should be able to simply look up at the night sky and know what season it is, what month it is, what week of the month it is, right down to the day. You always know, especially when you live in a community, when the Sabbath is coming or when a feast is coming, there's no excuse for not being prepared to worship God in the correct manner. But what if those things that were supposed to bring you enlightenment lead you astray? What if they don't guide you into true and proper worship of God? What if the host of heaven should abandon their courses? If you're thinking right now about the lesser, small-g gods that the Bible talks about, the sons of God, you're not alone. But pay attention to the text. None of the host of heaven get named. Instead of Shamash and Yarik, the sun and the moon, we get greater and lesser lights. The stars get no names at all, and they don't even have any dominion. But all that changes by the end of the primeval history, and that's why we find this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them 
things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. The purpose of this text in Genesis 1 is to belittle the gods by reminding God's true son Israel that the host of heaven were created to serve man and not the other way around. They're not in a position to demand worship. They ought to be busy providing light to mankind and guiding him to the proper worship of the Most High. So in case you're wondering, this isn't to say that the stars are gods or even that ancient people necessarily believed that they were. We've talked already when we first spoke about the firmament that there are ways of speaking so that what you say applies to two things even though you only refer directly to one. It's duality of meaning. That's not the same as confluence of identity. Saying that stars give light bears a strong parallel to the Jewish belief that the angels of God were tasked with instructing mankind. For example, look at Stephen's speech in Acts 7 uh, and in verses 52 and 53. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Mm, that's good. And here's another good one, which is uh, Paul speaking to the Galatians. So Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place three angels by an intermediary. Yeah, and here's another one, which I bet you all didn't pick up when we first read this passage in the first episode of the podcast. Paul, speaking to the Greeks at the Areopagus, in Acts 17, verses 26 to 27a. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What marks the allotted periods? It's the stars. How could stars help people find God? By guiding them with light towards the proper worship of Yahweh. Paul actually jumps from allotted periods to divine helpers of humankind in a single leap because he knows that stars fulfill both roles in a dual interpretation of the same function. Also, the boundaries of their dwelling place that Paul speaks of, that's a reference to the expanse of heaven itself. So the author of the primeval history is able to speak of one thing and mean two things, but not conflate them in literalism. Ordinary stars and planets and moons serve the function of giving light. The idea of light reflected from the moon and planets rather than generated by them was never a consideration. The Elohim had a task as well in bringing light as in wisdom and understanding. We talked about that usage of light earlier as well. At this point in the biblical narrative, we're getting hints that God knows this isn't going to work out long term. You might have picked up on that last week if you were paying attention. And we'll talk about that later, but there is certainly a sense that God did in fact create everything to work in a certain way within a larger ordered system. Speaking of systems, what we have here now, now that we're in the second half of creation week, is a shift in what God is doing. He spent the first three days creating the major infrastructure for systems on a macro level that would support life and bring about fruitfulness and productivity. He's now turning his attention to filling those major areas or systems with things that carry out the purpose of each major part and make it all work. So in day one, we got the creation of light and time. 
Now that we're in day four, we return to those major elements and God is populating the heavens with things that provide the light, things that tell the time. The second half of the creation week is about the small things that make the big systems work. We'll see this again next time when we look at day five and how it completes the work begun on day two. And again, day six matches up with day three to show how it all ties together in a working system. And that is how existence is supposed to be understood. Function within a larger system. So how can we get light before we get the lights? Why don't the sun and the moon and the stars, why don't they come first to provide the light? Well, first, I suppose it's worth saying that God does what he wants. And if he wanted to exude True. pure light from the sheer glory and radiance of his being, then he could do that. He doesn't mm -hmm. need the stars in the sky. But suppose God does use nature to provide the light. Then we could say, as I mentioned earlier, that perhaps the lights were there from the outset of the story of Genesis 1. Not uncreated or eternal, mind you, but they were there before day one that the author refuses to call the first day. But there is another option that doesn't clash with those. Suppose the days of creation are not necessarily given in the order in which they really occurred. What if the order of the days that we have in the text is given for a reason other than a chronological, historical account of sequential events? You might be thinking, why would anyone do that? There's probably a lot of people going, how dare you uh, rearrange Genesis 1 as well. Um, now, for those of you who have read Answers to Giant Questions, you'll be familiar with the concept I presented in Chapter 5 concerning the 150 days that the waters prevailed in the Great Flood, that the time period represents life cycles and the change of forms from one to another. But there's a problem with the 150 days because it's also referred to as five months. And that might do for a rough equation, but it's actually a few days short of 150 when we consider that the months are lunar and calculated on 29 or 30 days, depending on the appearance of the moon. So five months is never 150 days. It'd be more like 147 or 148. But if you want to say the waters prevailed five months, and then you want that five months to mean something more than just elapsed time, you equate it with something that communicates the meaning you intend. And the 150 days does that job. In 150 days, a goat bears its offspring from conception to birth. In 150 days, the locust goes through its entire life cycle, changing its form and its behaviour several times. In 150 days, the Nephilim became spirits that were capable of transforming ordinary men into the Rephaim through ritual death magic. The point is... The dates in the text aren't there to record when things happened according to the calendar. They mean something. It's the same thing in the Exodus. Do you think the Israelites, all two million of them, got up and left Egypt in a single night? That's physically impossible. The sheer volume of foot traffic means that it had to take several days. So why does the text tell us it was done in one night? Because the author is attaching the remembrance of the Exodus to a particular date. He wants to attach the origin of the nation to the first day of the year so that people never forget. It's not about the event happening on that date. It's about commemoration of the event on a day that is significant for other reasons. And we do that all the time. I mean, for a modern example, look at Christmas. We all know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25. That doesn't mean he wasn't born at all. It's just a nominal date, and it happens to be a date that was already significant for other reasons. 
so people wouldn't forget. It's not a mistake. It's just that the date doesn't matter like the commemorated event, a real historical event, matters. So what I'm saying is that the days of Genesis 1 might be in the order they're in for reasons more meaningful than mere sequence of events. And that means we're no longer worried about where the light came from on day one. Because in this text, not only does it not matter where material things come from, not only is the duration of the days irrelevant, did you notice in day three that the plants grew from seed to maturity in a single day, and it was the earth that produced them, not God personally. So we're not talking about you know some sort of divine intervention. But even the sequence of the days, as they might have occurred historically, that doesn't matter either. So the grouping of the days as we've seen, the first three days of the ordering of the cosmos to make it fruitful, the second three days to fill the cosmos with things that make it productive, that serves a purpose. It reflects the cycle of agrarian life in Israel. It's the agricultural year summed up in a week. What else shifts then in the second half of the creation week? Well, the other major shift is that God now begins to delegate his rule over creation. See how he gives the greater and lesser lights dominion over light and darkness. See how they now govern time under the authority of God. And as we continue in future episodes, we're going to see that God gives dominion to other creatures too. But notice again, and the scripture makes a point of it, so I make the point too, that these lights might be made responsible for the delineation of night and day, but they don't have independence or autonomy. When I set my wristwatch, I'm giving it the responsibility of telling me the time. It serves me, and I don't serve it. I don't need it either. I have other ways to tell the time. So the sun and moon are not treated as gods in this text. And the stars are even lower. They are treated as an afterthought without even a word about any authority. It's a deliberate statement against the gods of the nations that they might have responsibilities, but they aren't in charge. And they exist to serve God by serving us. And we'll leave it there for now. Next week, we're going to get into day five and possibly the most interesting of all the days. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers@outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you Joshua, a reader of the book, asked an interesting question. Acts 17.26, does that refer to Nimrod? Oh, that is a good question, Joshua. Well, we, uh, we opened our podcast series with this passage in the first episode. We referred to it again uh, earlier just now. But uh, we didn't go into any particular detail. We're going to return to it again and again as we go. But I don't mind tackling this question now because it's a fairly short answer. Here's the passage again with attention to verse 26. So I'm reading Acts 17 from 22 to 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That's the focus of our reading uh, for the purpose of this question. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, that's the end of the reading. Now, I would argue that verses 24 to 26 are about creation, according to Genesis 1 and 2, rather than the creation of the nations as told by the pagans. And obviously we've been working through that in this series, uh, talking about creation and uh, outlining the, the worldview through which that text was understood. Uh, I, I say creation as told by the pagans because most pagan creation stories align better with the biblical Babel account rather than the biblical creation. And that might be news to some of you. Uh, if this was lost on you right now and you've got no idea what's going on there, you need to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions and read chapters 9 and 10. We are going to be talking about it a bit more on the podcast, but really, if you want a bit more meat, a bit more detail on that, uh, pick up the book. I'll go through it uh, quite a bit. Now, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, what he calls the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which I largely agree with, uh, is the idea that the sons of God received dominion over the nations as they scattered from Babel, becoming the national gods of each nation with their own mythology formulating as a result. Since the concept of Earth, as it is often rendered, is usually better translated as land. We talked about that last week. Uh, you know, the national land and the national borders. The creation of each land can be spoken of as the creation of the earth. This makes sense functionally because land only exists if it is where you and your nation live, whereas a different land is not under the same order and is of no use to you and therefore it's chaotic and non-existent. Thus, each god creates his own earth by means of establishing order. However, all gods are subject to the sovereignty of the Most High God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Where my view differs from Heiser's is in that I don't see the necessity to exclude the fallen sons of God, uh, according to Genesis 6, 1-4, from this dominion as judgment against them. And that's not unique to me. Uh, Origen, in his work, uh, Contra Celsus has the same point of view so there's at least one of the church fathers as a precedent might be others but even the mention of nations here doesn't convince me that we've moved out of Genesis 1 and 2 here Paul is moving from creation to Christ and one must by necessity go through Adam to get there without destroying the connection of human priesthood between the two that priesthood is important because it brings all of humanity under the authority of God and therefore not only under sin in Adam, but redemption in Christ. 
this was particularly important because in the myths of most nations, it's the god of each nation that creates the people of that nation. Therefore, the human race was seen as a collection of races, each with their own creator god and without connection to Yahweh. So Paul makes clear that his god made all men, establishing God's superiority and the necessity for all ethnic groups to come back to him. What does Paul mean by allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place? Well, we've just been studying it. This, this isn't just earthly dominion here. It's the rakia and the stars in it. The gods whose job it is to guide people into proper worship according to the appointed times. All this stuff is creation language. The stars and the sons of God are spoken of in the same terms. Not because stars are gods. They aren't. But because both stars and gods have the same function toward mankind. So... I don't find any convincing argument for Nimrod here, even though it is tempting to see nations and star language that could lead you there. The nations are brought into the discussion because Paul is addressing Gentiles here, so he's including them under the umbrella of the overarching humanity of all, which has the effect of making Christ accessible to all. And in so doing, Paul presents Christ as solving not only the issue of national religion, but also that of human sin going right back to the original creation the first man adam it's time to wrap up today's episode but if you want more don't forget to get yourself a copy of answers to giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stephan on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. First, I'd like <laughs> to take a moment to talk about Updog. That sounds good, but I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. Is, is Updog a new app that I'm not familiar with? Oh, very funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Updog is my new thing. Sorry, you just uh, froze there, Tim. I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was very funny. Uh. I just heard silence. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just write that line out.